Hey everybody, it's Chris Campbell and welcome back to the Food Institute Podcast. This week we have Ibotta's Chris Jensen with us and we're going to be taking a look at how retailers and consumers are both reacting to increasing CPG prices. But before we get started, I did want to take a moment to remind everybody about Food Institute's Retail 360 newsletter, which we release every Wednesday. The newsletter focuses on all the retail trends you need to know for your business and if you're interested in signing up for the newsletter, take a look at the link in the description of this episode. So with that out of the way, we welcome Chris to the show. Chris, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and Ibotta? Yes, thanks for having me. My name is Chris Jensen. I lead revenue and operations for Ibotta. Uh, That includes a 250-person team uh, overseeing sales, account management, and then execution of our marketing partnerships. I've been with the company for about six years at this point. Uh, Prior to this company, I had founded a company in the performance marketing space, leveraging card-linked offer technology. And then prior to that, uh, I spent seven years with Whole Foods, where I was global marketing director uh, and in particular, helped get started their their performance marketing function. And I think that background's really going to help us out today as we kind of track how consumers are really reacting to rising CPG products. But before we jump into that, I did want to give you an opportunity to talk a little bit more about Ibotta. Can you tell us a bit about what differentiates you from your competitors in the market? Sure. So uh, Ibotta is a rewarded shopping platform that rewards people for making purchases across a variety of different industries, groceries particularly, but also on other things they might buy. Our objective is to really make every purchase rewarding. So whether somebody's booking a flight or uh, taking an Uber, eating at a restaurant or shopping at the grocery store, our objective is to make those purchases rewarding for people. We started with a real focus on grocery and what differentiated us initially was that we were truly pay per revenue or pay per sale rather than some of the legacy tactics which focused more on pay per clip or uh, pay, per, pay per view or things like that uh, instead of down funnel paying for every sale that is actually driven. Um, I think there are other companies out there that have really followed suit, and there's quite a few companies out there today that are pay per sale or pay per revenue. What differentiates Ibotta today is that uh, most of those entities, most companies within the performance marketing space tend to drive pretty strong return on investments for clients, but they do so at very limited scale. They're quite small compared to big platforms like Google, Facebook, or a Super Bowl campaign. And Ibotta's objective is to take the best of that performance marketing technology out to a Super Bowl scale for the first time by partnering with a lot of other entities such as Walmart and other grocery stores, other types of publishers. So Chris, thanks for sharing all of that. And I think we can kind of turn into the topic for today's conversation. And I think right now, most consumers are looking at rising gas prices, rising food costs, general inflation overall. So I'm going to open up with a pretty tough question, but what's going to be the breaking point for consumers, right? What's going to happen that's going to make them change their purchasing behavior? So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit of your insight on this to start. Yeah, my perspective is that uh, we're, we're already there in terms of Uh, A breaking point is defined by changing consumer behavior. People are already doing so in response to inflation. People are feeling that pinch. Uh, I think somewhere in the ballpark of three quarters of shoppers out there today are worried about inflation. Nearly half of people out there are worried about uh, or uncomfortable about their finances. And so we're seeing people change their behavior uh, accordingly. We're seeing people shopping at stores, uh, more stores to find the best deals rather than simply going to the same stores over and over again, which is actually pretty unusual. In the grocery space, people tend to be very loyal to a particular grocer. It's close to them. They find that they like the prices in selection. 
So the idea of people shopping around across multiple grocers to find the best deal is relatively new to us. Uh, we see people cutting back on non-essentials like snacks and candy, people buying fewer items on each trip, um, different items ending up in the basket uh, as well. So I think we're at that breaking point in terms of changing consumer behavior already. And one of the things that we've tracked here at the Food Institute recently regarding those changes, it seems that private label is having its moment again. I'm wondering if you have any insight on that. Do you see that uh, consumers are switching from national brands to private label? Any other kind of trends like that? Yes, this is definitely happening. Uh, we see quite a bit of that in our own data. We hear that from our brand partners. Uh, you read about it in, in industry press to some degree as well. Sales of private label products are growing faster than those of national brands. Um, we see you know, nearly half of shoppers buying more pri private label products today compared to a couple of years ago. And what we hear from them is they plan to continue to do so. They're finding those products are great, live up to their expectations, and they tend to be uh, great value for the money. Uh, Kroger just released a report that showed that nine out of 10 of its customers purchased branded products, uh, Kroger branded products over the first quarter of this year. So it's definitely uh, a trend that is emerging and, and something that I think both uh, particularly national brands really need to be uh, thinking about as they think about how they can uh, compete and make sure that they're still within that consumer's basket. I'd like to switch gears a little bit here. You know, the other side of the food industry, taking a look at the food service side, they're not immune to these inflationary pressures either. So prices are going up. I think a lot of people are starting to see cooking at home as a more affordable option. And, you know, during the pandemic, we saw a lot of people that were able to skill up or rekindle their love of cooking. So with that all in mind, I'm wondering, how do you see that dynamic playing out in this inflationary environment? Do you think that CPG and grocery in general is going to continue to kind of reap the rewards of this current situation? Do you think food service is going to be able to step in? How do you see that playing out? I think the trend is going to continue. This idea that people are trading out, you know, going out to eat at restaurants for cooking at home. We're going to see people continuing to uh, potentially spend more of those dollars that would have otherwise gone to restaurants at the grocery store. Um, you know, gas prices are going up, as we've talked about. And so that further encourages people to stay at home. Um, people are going to continue to try to hone their cooking skills at home. Uh, trying out new things. We're seeing even, in fact, we're seeing cookbook sales uh, increasing in volume year over year as well, which is a, an indicator that people are continuing to invest in uh, their, their skills as a chef at home. So I certainly think this trend is going to continue um, in, into the foreseeable future. Yeah. And, you know, anecdotally, that's definitely something that happened in my own life. I started cooking more during the pandemic and it's something that I am continuing to do. And I think part of it is, you know, like you said, to the point of buying more cookbooks, there's a lot of ways to educate yourself on this too, beyond just cookbooks. You can go online, go on YouTube, et cetera. So plenty of opportunities there for, you know, different ways to learn how to cook. Uh, taking a look at any other consumer trends that are kind of emerging, do you have any Ibotta data that you could highlight? Maybe another trend that we're not talking about currently that might be happening right now? We're seeing quite a few interesting phenomena out there. Uh, shopping lists is kind of an interesting one that I might not have thought of myself, where people are planning their shopping trips more carefully. They're thinking through which items can I buy, which items are, uh, are there deals for, which items am I going to make sure that are, are necessities for me, which ones are more nice to have, so maybe I eliminate those. I bought a scene 150% increase in the use of grocery lists. Uh, to make use of, make note of these uh, savings opportunities in particular. 
We're seeing that uh, people are buying fewer items per trip, as I mentioned. We're seeing uh, a shift in the way people are, are purchasing those items that end up in those baskets. So for example, milk prices are growing like crazy, uh, as are many other, you know, many other staples. So that's causing people to buy fewer half or fewer full gallons of milk, for example. They might be buying more half gallons. Um, the dairy increases obviously also impact things like pizza. So we're seeing all of these trends in our data. We're seeing a greater demand, of course, for, for more uh, savings as this is putting a pinch on people's wallets as well. And so uh, we're, we're seeing this you know, trend uh, across all different ways that people are approaching their, their shopping trips at the grocery store. So it's very insightful. And I know we just spoke a lot about the consumer aspect of this you know, relationship, but I'd like to talk about the retailers as well. Um, from what you're seeing and hearing, what are retailers really doing to react to these rising prices? What kind of information can you share? Yeah, so I think I think a lot of retailers are really doubling down on strategies uh, that we've seen them employ historically. Those who have been close to the space are very familiar with things like loss leaders, uh, things like putting everyday essentials toward the back of the stores. We're definitely seeing those trends to try to get as retailers try to drive uh, price perception and bigger baskets. So in the case of loss leaders, for example, uh, retailers might price items that shoppers are, are most familiar with very low, and then they may hold firm or increase price on less visible items, less uh, items which uh, consumers may not be able to name the price of so easily, ultimately to create that perception of low crisis, prices across the board. Stores are also you know, modifying their store layouts to make sure that uh, consumers have to go all the way deep into the store to to find the essentials, the milk, eggs, cheese, bread, and have to pass by a whole bunch of other items in the store, hopefully inspiring incremental purchases along the way. So taking a look to non-grocery items, one of the things that I've kind of heard this year is that some traditional grocers are looking beyond food to find ways to grow. Uh, even some extreme examples I've heard talk that even believing that they're not going to make money on grocers at all. It's going to be these non-grocery services. So I'm wondering from your vantage point, is there any credibility to that? Do you see that being a potential avenue for these companies to kind of increase their revenue? Certainly. Yeah. I mean, look at uh, Amazon's history. Uh, they, they famously have low, if not uh, zero margins in many of their consumer facing products and have used services to drive a lot of their profitability. So I think we're going to see a lot of grocers continuing to follow suit Grocery is famous for its low margins, even at sort of higher end stores or higher end grocers like Whole Foods. Uh, I think along those lines, we're definitely seeing an explosion in some of these, uh, you know, high margin, non-consumer facing products such as retail media networks, uh, data networks. These allow retailers to really capitalize on a lot of the data that they have to create uh, greater engagement between brands and consumers, but they can do so at a significantly improved margin relative to the products that they sell in their store. So uh, to your point, they may be able to get by with relatively low margin on the specific products within their stores and then and then make a lot more profit from some of these uh, alternative services and products. I also think there's an opportunity to double down on on certain things within the store, gift cards, for example, typically have the highest profit per square foot of any real real estate within a grocery store, which is why you've seen the prominence of those, gro uh, those gift card malls explode over the course of the last 10 or 15 years. So you'll probably see continued investment in things like that as well. 
And one thing I think that's also going to be impacting a lot of the pricing and product availability is really the supply chain. And I know that things have somewhat calmed down recently in the last couple of months, but a lot of people I've been talking to kind of indicate that the supply chain pain is going to maintain until about mid 2023. That's the estimate I'm seeing at this point. So I'm wondering, you know, from the retail perspective, how do you kind of navigate these sorts of tumultuous supply chain problems that, you know, if you're trying to be a loss leader on specific products, you don't even need to look to shipping. You can just look to avian influenza this year on chicken, et cetera. So with all of these different, you know, headwinds coming at you, how do you kind of navigate that? Could you share what your perspective would be? I mean, it's extraordinarily challenging. What we've seen from the likes of, say, Walmart and Target and many other retailers is that inventory has been extraordinarily challenging to manage. Probably the most challenging it's been during our lifetimes because of the current supply chain. So you're you're seeing instances where Walmart and Target may have overbought in many categories based on assumptions around continued demand for those particular categories or products, or maybe there were assumptions around when inventory would show up at the stores and it was just mistimed. And so uh, I think you're seeing in many cases margins squeezed by virtue of overbuying in those products, and you're going to end up seeing a lot of discounting on those items. You're going to see, I think, a a wave of discounts, particularly in the general merchandise space across uh, retailers like, like Target, like Walmart. In fact, Target indicated as such over the course of the last few weeks on one of their earnings calls. Uh, So I think that'll be one trend we're likely to see. I also think that, you know, retailers just need to be very thoughtful about uh, how they're employing those savings to consumers and ideally trying to target people who are uh, most likely to purchase particular products or for which those products are most relevant in order to maximize their margins and and make those uh, discounting opportunities go further. So that's one of the reasons you see these more personalized loyalty programs emerging out there amongst retailers, because it allows them to have a more precise one-to-one conversation with consumers in order to uh, inspire very thoughtful engagement that helps protect margin at the same time. Yeah, and I'd love to talk a little bit more about loyalty programs. And to your point there, we are seeing more retailers develop them. So I'm assuming there's more consumer demand there. But I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more from your perspective, what the consumer demand is like right now for an inflationary period. Are consumers turning to these as a way to save a few extra dollars? Absolutely. Yeah, it makes sense intuitively. As your wallet is being squeezed, you look for more opportunities to save money. And so we're definitely seeing people seek out these rewards programs more than ever. Um, at the same time, we're also seeing that, that brands are feeling the impact of that inflation. They're seeing squeezed margins. And so they're being more thoughtful about how they deploy those. Um, what's been interesting is we're seeing a shift, even though, uh, I, I perceive that people are in greater need of rewards, cash back discounts, things that are wallet friendly than ever before. They're also steering away from some of the legacy tactics out there. We see very, very low redemption rates of things like FSIs or printed coupons, in part because people don't get the newspaper like they used to. People don't uh, have printers maybe as much as they used to at home. So there's fewer print at home coupons being redeemed. And in part because the return on time spent for some of those things isn't what it, it used to be. I think for many consumers, they're busier than ever. And so they want mechanisms that will allow them to get those rewards as seamlessly as possible. So we're starting to see a shift more towards some of these retail oriented programs, as opposed to uh, programs that maybe we've seen in the past uh, with FSIs or inserts in, in newspapers and things like that. 
And I'm wondering a little bit about the demand. Obviously, we're on the Food Institute podcast, so we got to talk about the food aspect. So I guess it's somewhat of a two-part question, but is are you seeing this loyalty program demand on the grocery side? Is it relegated to other parts of the retail industry? How is that kind of broken down? We're seeing it across the board. Certainly, it is, I would say, most commonplace or at least most mature within the grocery space. But we're definitely seeing an emergence of these types of vehicles across uh, a number of different industries. We're seeing uh, brands and, and uh, consumers encountering headwinds of inflation across you know, travel, sporting goods, uh, electronics, entertainment. And so there's potentially more demand and more of a need for these types of programs uh, across all different types of industries. You're seeing companies like Best Buy really double down on or invest substantially more in their My Best Buy rewards programs in a way that they probably weren't 10 years ago when Kroger had a mature program. So again, they're, they're probably not quite as mature and they certainly haven't been uh, around as long as some of the grocery oriented programs, but they can learn from those programs and ultimately uh, create a great consumer experience for you know what what the customer is looking for today. Yeah, and to your point that you know grocery has a long history of these loyalty programs. Uh, I think one part of the restaurant, you know, restaurants really, the food industry, restaurants seemingly are turning to this as well. So with a company that's either looking to install a program like this or maybe update it. Do you find that they're coming to companies like yours for those loyalty programs? Are they building them on their own internal systems? Is it a mix of both? How does that kind of play out? Mostly they're looking to a company like Ibotta uh, or you know other companies that play in the space to uh, partner with in order to execute these programs. I'm certain that every single one of them evaluates whether or not they could create it themselves. But in most cases, I think what retailers realize is it's, it's you know, exceptionally complicated to build and uh, they're better off kind of focusing on their core competencies of, of serving their consumer uh, through the mechanisms that they've become accustomed to building in the case of Walmart over the course of the last 60 years. They're better off partnering with a company like Ibotta or other companies that might be able to provide rewards as a service to help develop the, um, the content the cash back offers or the rewards that are available to consumers through the program, and then all of the infrastructure that goes into executing one of these programs, which you can imagine is, is somewhat complex. They might, though, of course, tie these back to a lot of the things that they've got built already. And so, uh, you know, Walmart, for example, operates its own uh, digital ecosystem across its app and its website. So they'll look for ways to seamlessly integrate a program like this into their existing infrastructure. And they may want to use their media network as a means to promote this as well. So there can be a lot of, uh, I think, close partnership and ties between these programs. But most often, I would say that uh, the, the retailers look to a third party to help help with the execution. I think from the consumer side, it's very apparent what the benefit for signing up for one of these programs is, and that's either cash back or deals, coupons, et cetera. But if you're a brand or a retailer, what's the major benefit for engaging in one of these programs? I think the primary benefit is you have the opportunity to, to better engage both new and existing consumers. So uh, one of the challenges we ran into during my time at Whole Foods, I, I'd been with the company uh in you know over the course of say 2008 to 2015 the company had been around for 30 years at that point and never had a loyalty program 
And because of that, they didn't have a great way to really understand their consumer, and they certainly didn't have a way to personally engage their consumer. So we had different mechanisms by which we could learn about consumer preferences, but it was not nearly as robust as it would have been had we had a more one-to-one oriented loyalty program. And what the program allows uh, a company like Whole Foods, who has since rolled out a program in partnership with Amazon, what Kroger and Safeway and others have realized is that they can better understand consumer preferences and therefore respond to those preferences by creating a greater consumer experience both in-store and online, which ultimately allows those consumers to engage with them more deeply and hopefully drive more foot traffic, uh, buy more items or have bigger baskets, things like that as well. It also allows them to engage people on a one-to-one basis, particularly in a digital environment where they can offer rewards or they can offer products that are particularly relevant to the specific individual and maybe scale back on how they promote other things that are less relevant to to cut through the clutter and not create so much noise for people. So ultimately, it's really about driving that engagement, getting people to engage with them in those digital channels and to become more omni-channel uh, omni-channel shoppers overall. Um, so similar to a consumer, it is it is highly beneficial for the retailers uh, as well. So we're coming up to the close of this episode, Chris. I do want to give you an opportunity to share a link or two here. So if anyone wants to learn a little bit more about Ibotta, where can they go? They can go to, the best place to go is ipn.ibotta.com or if they just go to uh, ibotta.com. They'll they'll find most of that information right there. Uh, certainly, if anybody has questions or wants to learn more, they can reach out to me directly. My email address is chris.jensen at ibotta.com, and I'm happy to engage on in, in a conversation if people are interested in learning more. And we'll definitely share the links to those websites in the description of this episode. I just want to thank you for your time today, Chris. A very interesting topic, and your insights were really, really appreciated. So thank you very much. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. I enjoyed it. So that's going to do it for us this week on the Food Institute Podcast. I want to thank Chris for his time again. I want to remind you all to sign up for the Retail 360 newsletter, and you can find a link to that in the description of this episode. We'll catch you next time. This is Chris Campbell signing off.